This episode of American Fashion Podcast was recorded on March 9th, 2020, and uh, it was the first episode we recorded in the new Mouth Media Network studio at the edge of Madison Square Park, uh, just down the street from where our previous studio was, on, uh, both on West 25th Street, basically. It was a strange feeling. We, uh, we have to go down a kind of long hallway from the reception area to where the studio is back in the building. And so we went up to, to get Mary from reception and, um, there were no receptionists there and, and kind of what we pay for with the, the building is, is we pay for good, uh, reception for professional appearance and there was no receptionist there. And, um, that just seemed pretty strange. And at the same time, um, the grocery stores were starting to have panic buying going on. They're, they were really full of people. And um, basically the, the quarantine happened just a few hours after we recorded this. And um, I'm not sure that when we'll ever be back in that studio again. It's just a whole strange thing. And uh, this conversation that we had in this episode is about the supply chain and I think maybe now, today, weeks and weeks later, as, as this COVID-19 thing has gone on, maybe the answers would have been quite different because of how different the context is for how difficult it's been to get things into the country and how difficult it's been to get things out to customers. I think the supply chain and the logistics chain is very much in question and people want to improve it in a way they've never wanted to before. I mean, in, in a larger sense that, that people who run big fashion companies, they know it must be changed. They, they don't want to be caught in this position again, which I think is a really good thing because it means there will be more transparency in the supply chain to the people who are making, making the purchases. You're not going to be placing an order with a middleman and not knowing where he's getting the goods or she, you're going to want to know. Um, you're going to know where the factory is, what farms they're getting the textiles from. Uh, that's important for big fashion companies now that, um, it may even be important for insurance reasons. I mean, th there's a lot of cause and effect here. So um, there's good information in this interview. But I think uh, if we had this conversation again, it would turn out a little differently. So within that context, um, this is a little piece of history that unfolds as we play this. This is American Fashion Podcast. I'm Charles Beckwith. You're with Kathy Sheppis. Hi, everyone. And our guest in the studio is Mary Callie, who is an industry veteran with an expertise in supply chains. Hi, Mary. Hi, Charles. <laughs> Hi, Catherine. Hi. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, so you've worked for some huge companies. Uh, and small companies and, as well. And small companies, but you've you've dealt with very complicated supply chains. Correct. How do you conceive of them in the most basic way? 
I think the process for me, obviously, it's always an integrated process inside the company with design, product development, technical. Um, it all has to come together while I decide where we can source product, how it's going to be delivered, and the amount of time that it takes to deliver that product. So basically, it's it's a coming together of all these individuals sitting down, discussing how we can manufacture this product, the quality of it, and the end result of what we're going to get. What are the biggest challenges brands are facing right now with supply chains? Right now, the virus, obviously, is the, the biggest issue on the board. Um, Did it catch them by surprise? I think yes, but I'm not quite sure about that. You know, I think um, I think China, unfortunately, was not being quite honest uh, when the incipient stages of this happened, probably last October. Um, and I think those people that may have been more aware of this took an earlier stance on what they needed to do. Many of the companies that I've worked with um, over the past several years have gone into other countries primarily because of pricing. So... For many companies right now, I'm finding that they diversified their uh, their chains in the last five to seven years to include Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, India, Indonesia, so many other countries around the world. It may not have had the same effect that it would have if they were solely in China at this point. Uh, unfortunately, it is what it is right now. I think many companies, from what I've been reading, were very quick to react and to get out of their situations, uh, it, I think from what I'm hearing more, it, it really, and from what I'm dealing with now, it affected more of the textile mills, even than more of the manufacturing aspect of it. I feel that some of these companies were able to change quickly into uh, a factory. It's the textiles that were an issue for many of them. And, you know, right now, Many of these factories have gone back to work, but they're still missing many of the workers because some, of course, are marooned inside of their own uh, uh, cities in China. Well, they traveled home for the holidays, basically. Yes. yes. And then they weren't able to get back to the manufacturing Correct. cities. Correct. I just want to say, so that's textile manufacturing. That's a problem in China, but now also in, in Italy. Italy as well. Yeah. In more of the luxury markets, it's more of a problem in Italy. Uh I've had friends that, unfortunately, are in a really rough situation right now with their manufacturing due to this. Are you in touch with the people running factories in these countries? Yes. What are they saying? You know, again, it's it's devastating to many of them. Obviously, they're losing a great deal of business. You're losing time um, and and money, obviously, is the key issue here. And as I said, I think most of them at this point have tried to diversify have tried to look for other options in order to satisfy either the textile aspect or the factory uh, part of the equation. So uh, it's still a difficult issue, though, for many of them. Is the textile supply chain that short? No, you always have alternatives. I think anybody that's really looked at their supply chains over the last few years have taken into consideration things like this could happen. So uh, China is still a very big uh, player in the business. But as I said previously, many people have moved away from it in many ways. It's just really the textile part. I find that more people have, uh, have had this issue with. Are they worried about getting sick? Oh, I think it's illness is number one. I think it's a 
priority for most people at this point. And again, with some of the workers in these mills, um, they don't want to come back. Even if they're able to come back, some of them don't want to come back because they are afraid. And it's understandable. So looking at what's happening now and thinking in the long term, there are a lot of things, not just apparel, that we are in need of and we're relying on other countries for. So does this make you feel as if there will be a bigger concentration on trying to develop a stronger supply chain here? Yes. I think I think some business will come back here. I was just reading an article recently. There is a, a Chinese manufacturer that has invested heavily actually in Arkansas, to develop a mill as well as a facility to manufacture. And interestingly, but it's robotics. And that was something. The the t-shirt manufacturing. Yes, that's right. Yeah, with the Sobot from Atlanta. That's correct. That's correct, yeah. And what was quoted as far as pricing, it would take $7 and some odd change to to develop a t-shirt here uh, using uh, humans, basically, in a factory. Uh, The way they broke it down, it would be 33 cents, basically, in labor costs. So the, the big difference here, of course, is the upfront cost of robotics and how you're going to implement this into a factory here. Yeah, and that location where they built the factory is within a couple hours drive of most of the American population. That's correct. Yeah. So these are all things on the forefront that I I find so fascinating and that I think will be the the industry going forward. There's been a resurgence in what we used to call 807, which has been Caribbean Basin, where they used to really require uh, huge quantities uh, to manufacture with. Now you're finding they're taking much smaller quantities really to be back in the game. So that's another interesting aspect also. So the factories in the Caribbean are being opened to smaller lots, smaller runs? Yes, yes. For textiles or cut and sew or both? Both, actually. Some of them are vertical, and some of them really, it's going to be, again, what we used to call the 807 process was fabric either from here or from overseas and then being cut and then being sewn there. But more of them are more vertical now than ever before. What, where's that number come from? Is that like a, a trade number? Or? Uh, it's very article, very very much articles from I've read that um, I don't have the statistics in front of me. But, no, I mean the um, number 807. Why is it oh, that was years ago. That was the old definition uh, for Caribbean Basin. Um, Otexa and years ago when the government was deciding on duty-free and different aspects of how to uh, – bring goods outside of the country but save on duty rates. Uh, it was a number that was given for that particular uh, type of manufacturing. Okay. Interesting. Nobody that the calls first time you heard it? <laughs> no, you, you don't yeah. know about it. Nobody no. calls that 807 anymore. It's just Caribbean Basin, basically. And now do you think that they're concentrating more on, on smaller uh, lot manufacturing. It, it's not. It's not very small lots. Mm-hmm. It's still a good sizable. But years ago, when we used to do manufacturing there, you had to have at least ten thousand, twenty thousand units to be able to do that. I understand now they're willing to take three thousand units, which is substantially less. And also the business has changed so much too. Uh, I, I think along with just the whole business model of how peril is, peril industry has become. Um, lots are much less than what they used to be. Okay, so I was I wanted to know if you were familiar with Cala, which is a I'll call it a manufacturing pl- a platform where you can go and have product developed. How do you see these platforms that are developing compared to 
men, you know, companies that did private label before or like bigger companies like a Liam Fung, like where, where, where are the benefits? I think the benefit from what I'm understanding from Cala, they're really geared more towards much smaller companies, people that are really just starting out with smaller quantities. What I don't understand about some of these um, technological companies that have come along is what is the back office work of it? Who is doing the QC? Who is qualifying factories? You can't just use an agent who's sourcing for you without having your own boots on the ground, really to understand what the factory is, how they can manufacture for you, and what their limitations are. So that's one of the things that I always have to question when I see a lot of techno companies come in that want to do these type of things. I think it's a wonderful thing for the future. I think it's very needed. Uh, you cannot compare this to a lean fund because of size, basically. And it's a whole different animal. Uh, Lee and Fung, when I was there, the bare minimum they would take was 50,000 units to start off a label. So a company like this, as I've been learning, uh, basically will take very small units and uh, whatever they consider very large units as well. So it's a very different type of business. I think it's wonderful for young people who want to start a business on their own but don't have the wherewithal, don't have a background in the industry or the knowledge of design or production. It, it's a great facility to have. But I always have questions about these things and, and who has the expertise within that business to really run the back end of it, production, sourcing, quality control, uh, the shipping aspect of it as well. Mary, you've worked for these huge fashion companies what do they usually do right that the small brands get wrong? And what do they do wrong that the small brands tend to get right? Mm, very good question. I think what they do right is they do have enough personnel in place, first of all, to be able to handle situations that arise in quality, in production itself, in sourcing, uh, in design, in product development. They have the ability, because of their financial uh, structure to be able to have the correct personnel. I, again, I find many times with these smaller companies, uh, they may lack um, the finances to be able to afford the correct people, uh, enough people to be able to handle the situation or have enough expertise themselves to understand what the pitfalls might be. I, I overthink situations sometimes, I've been told, but i rather be always careful and do as much due diligence as I can before you make any type of commitments. So I think you need to have that understanding when you're doing any type of manufacturing. What do you typically do during a day at one of these big companies? What, what's your Ooh. role? Well, there's always emails in the morning. That's your first thing. <laughs> there's always a problem. It, you know, production, I always say, always has issues. You never get away from it. There are so many people that are involved in the supply chain in, in any aspect of doing any type of product that it's, 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 it's like an orchestra in a way, just being able to put everything together and have it flow. So emails are the first thing in the morning, understanding what issues have to be taken care of that day, interfacing with everybody in the office that needs to be attended to for whatever issues they may be having. And there are always meetings every day for development of product, uh, for design aspect. Again, there may be issues with fabric, uh, with the quality of the product, what the factory is capable of doing. So those are all different aspects of what could happen in a day. 
I always say you never, there's always a new problem. No there's matter a, how many years you've no kind matter, of been in the you business. Know, I, I always say too, I learn something new every day. There's always some new problem I've never faced before. I will face that day and you just don't know. And that's how you learn, basically. You learn from all these different problems and issues. How much have you had to learn about sustainability and how much of a grasp do you feel like you, you have on it now? I have more of a grasp than ever before, but that that is another issue in itself because a lot of companies, even though they tout sustainability, don't really follow it. There's a cost to that as well. And if you're a small manufacturer, it's very difficult to do your due diligence with sustainability and be able to put that in your bottom line. It, it's a process. Uh, I think I think most companies are moving forward in that direction in a very good way. Certainly the larger companies that can afford again um, to address this issue, do it well, and are, are continuing to make strides. But the industry is still made up of a lot of small companies. We have very big ones, and we've got many, many small ones that can't at this point do what they need to do with that. And it's I see and hear this all the time. So as much as we all talk about it and want to address it, uh, it's another cost that's passed on to the consumer. And you have to look at, does the consumer want to pay for all of this as well? When I was working on Save the Garment Center and, and before when we were working on Manufacturing New York, and, and now I, I have a new nonprofit I can't talk about yet, um, that we're, we're looking at always this this idea of local is sustainable and creating systems where all these technologies can connect together and we can make things within 50 or 200 miles of where they're used. Um, and I really wonder about the workforce development aspect of that for fashion because you need talented people who have been trained on on a lot of different techniques to be able to execute the variety of fashions that come out every season. Um, what do you think are the the challenges for being able to kind of print to Tennessee or print to Seattle when someone designs something in New York? Um, and and have people actually on the ground able to, to finish things in those places? If you're talking about the fabric aspect, digital printing is what everybody is going towards these days. So that's very feasible. If you're talking in relationships to actual factories and manufacturing, that's another issue. Yeah. Because you do not have personnel here anymore that wants to work in the factory. You know, it's uh, when I started in the business, you still had so many factories in New York City, in Pennsylvania, up and down. Even New England, you had so many. And of course, as the immigration population um, grows up, uh, gets better jobs, or some of them die off, the children do not want to be in this business, unfortunately. it's Sweatshops here years ago were very difficult in the city to be in. I remember doing Velvet uh, in Midtown in July. It was awful. It was hot. It was sticky. Uh People don't want to work in factories anymore, which is why robotics is the thing that's going to make the difference here if companies can afford to implement these kind of ideas. Uh, as far as the design aspect, being able to do that, that's that's not an issue anymore. People work uh, overseas, here, whatever it might be, because you have that availability. The physical aspect is the thing that I find most difficult. 
I don't know. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking there are so many people that are working um, assembly lines and things in like Amazon. So it's a different sewing type. almost yeah. seems to be uh, more pleasurable. It's not. <laughs> it is not. Believe me, you know, whether it's overseas or whether it's here, it's a lot of pressure. It really is. Mm. Yeah, it, it's very difficult. People it, love to make things. It, it's the conditions under it's which the conditions. It's the, the conditions. It's the conditions under which they have to make things in these factories that aren't comfortable places to work. Correct. So if we can fix that part of it, if people can, might be willing to go back to these jobs. I mean, as long as we pay them well. I don't know, honestly, if young people would really want to work in a factory. It's a little different at Amazon, I, I think, as far as their type of assembly for shipping and that type of thing. Um, I'm not so sure if people, okay. if there would be young people willing to go back to do sewing, other than if it was an immigrant population that was starting out and needed to have jobs and they did have a skill set from their country, that might be a possibility. Yeah. Uh, but again, I'm not so sure if you'd have enough of the population willing to go back to factory work here, honestly. Yeah. Well, if you balance it, in the automation, though, well, I was there just might be enough say people. The, the one area that I feel the way that they would work in a factory is really to have the technology information and be able to program machines, basically yeah. to do that. That would be an employee in a factory, and that would probably take up, say, 30 or 40 sewers because you're you're automated. Uh, but as far as physically sitting there and sewing on machines, I'm not so sure. Yeah. I would be nice, but I, I, you know, I don't know if that's a possibility anymore. Some people think they feel like it's a very Zen thing to just be sewing all day. Like it's I'd like to know them. <laughs> Maybe we just have to like romance to it. <laughs> we have to romance it a little bit more. Yeah. And make it more like an atelier that you're working in. If you think about in Let Europe that in are, nice are more again, middle it, age and young working there I as an it, art. Yeah. I think, again, it depends upon the level of product you're talking about. Yeah. If it's more couture well, or luxury, right. it's, it's quite different than somebody working on... Uh, a pair of jeans or a t-shirt in a factory where you're spinning out X number per hour, where you have couture and you have fine hands doing that. And it's a really a love of labor for that. That's quite different. No, you're right. But for mass production, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. So what do you think is going to change? I mean, we, we have this virus that's scaring everybody. Yeah. I mean, the economy is going crazy right now. I, I'm not panicking. I no. think this will be over soon. I think the, a lot of it is just uh, we certainly have to be aware. That's that's definite. Uh, but I think uh, I think it should be over in the next couple of months that we'll be back to some normalcy. And I think some different models of how we work has to come out of this so that people keep more money in reserve for a two-month period, you know, uh, that they can survive a two-month period and take care of employees during that time period. I agree. I, I think, yeah, I think, again, it's another learning process when something like this happens where you make adjustments and then you move forward to try something new. It's a factory upstairs. <laughs> so you worked at Eileen Fisher yes. for a while. Yes. So thinking back on that, um, what what do you think that they did there that was a major attribute to how they grew their business? That... Oh, it was it was a wonderful place, I have to tell you, because Eileen was really on the forefront of compliance, sustainability even at that time, actually, 
and a little more automation, believe it or not. Uh, we started to use spectrophotometers, which are uh, calibration machines for uh, looking at lab dips, colors, that type of thing, which was new technology at that time, and that's going back 20 years. Um, sustainability was very much on her mind, social consciousness uh, and social responsibility. We were very involved with BSR at that time uh, and really on the forefront of really qualifying factories uh, for many of those issues. We had very strict compliance. As you've worked in supply chain for so long, what have been the most difficult technologies to implement? Oh, my goodness. Let's see. Back then or now, you mean? At, at any point in your career, what, what was the, the strangest I, I thing to try to get in? Um, you know, I, I have to tell you that so many companies that I've worked for are sometimes half in technology and half out. Many companies still work on Excel. They don't have PLM systems, PDM systems. It's a very interesting industry. It's not like the entire industry moves at one time. And again, it has to do with the complexity of the company itself, the, the size of it, um, personnel involved, uh, what they're willing to spend on technology as well. Uh, I don't know. It, it's very funny. I think the biggest thing was PLM systems for me when they were starting out. It was a huge investment. We put in PDM at Eileen at the time. It was a huge investment for me. And I had a number of technical designers, and we actually worked at the best of most companies that I've seen in that we started with design, went into product development, and technical design into production. A lot of companies just maybe use it for design just use it for technical. They don't take the full use of a lot of these products, which I find is the big issue. It should be from beginning to end. It should be from start of design, concept, all the way through warehousing, shipping. But again, most companies use parts and pieces of it and don't necessarily integrate the whole process. The larger companies certainly can. The more mid-sized and smaller companies, no. Do you think that's because they're unwilling to, to shut down and have everybody, everybody learn for a couple of weeks? You know, there there is a learning curve to this. It's always, they say, three months. It's actually six months to nine months and even a year sometimes to get everybody really up and running and proficient on these systems. So that's part of it. Once they're that's up, what, though. they're what, Once they're up, it's wonderful. Once they're up, things really hum along very nicely. It's clean work. It's done nicely, so easy to understand. And certainly when you're working with factories overseas, it's so much more efficient. Um, again, it's a mindset of the company. It's the time that's allocated. It's finances. It's the money. There yeah. are so many issues that go into this. Licenses are very expensive, and keys to these particular uh, types of technology are expensive. Yeah. Because they have to integrate it into their current systems, right? Correct. And then basically almost have it have some of it custom made for them. At one company, and I won't say which one, it was a large company, we tried different PLM systems. This one company we worked with just couldn't get it. And again, here's where the background of the techno people that were involved did not really understand the business that well. Um, you know, the platform even for uh, PDM initially was off an architecture platform. Some are aeronautical platforms they work them off of. So it has to really be tweaked to the nuances of the apparel industry. But if you don't have the, again, the background, the people involved in putting together these systems for your company that understand the full supply chain, that's where you have issues. 
So it took a couple of different companies to truly understand, and that's just part of the process and the evolution of using these systems. Have you ever felt held back when, when you saw technologies that, that could be used? Yes. <laughs> I love to do more uh, technological things, but again, it's a cost issue for most companies. Very, uh, you know, you can... You can write down as much as you want and make a presentation and say, this would help so much. This would save this amount of time. This would be so much more efficient with the factories. But again, a lot of it just comes down to finances and the practicality of the time involved with this as well. But yes, it's frustrating sometimes. What have you not gotten to play with that you're really interested in? Well, you know, um, in one company, we had uh, tried actually the 3D modeling on uh, in technical the on forms, 3D draping. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It it never really got off the ground the way we had anticipated. Uh, a little frustrating. It took a long time to do that. Um, I think any of these new systems that are up are so worthwhile to look into. But again, it's it's it just takes a long time to bring management around at some point to say, hey, I'm willing to sign in on this and I'm willing to make the commitment. Again, you know, if business is going well with what you've got, sometimes you know, the theory is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And if they can do well with the way that they're working, why do you want to put another chink in the chain, basically? So I don't agree with that. I think you should always be moving forward and always be looking to the future and how business is going to evolve because it's going to save you money in the end. Well, that, but, that's kind of like, why do you want to change the oil? The car's running. Right. <laughs> I, I know. I, I know. So... Again, it's mindset, it's yeah. finances. There's so many other issues involved with it. Besides the Caribbean, what areas of the world are opening up in terms of supply chain that are surprising you, that, that are new? Um, nothing's really new, I have to say, because there's been manufacturing around the world for centuries. <laughs> so nothing really is new. As far as the U.S. involvement, you know, we've really worked in in really around the world for many years as well. When I started in the business, uh, basically you bought fabric in Japan and you worked in uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Korea. Those were the big three you had to work in. Over the years, obviously, as we became more globalized, uh, we worked in many, many countries. Right now, the last one that I found on earth, besides Cuba, if it ever opens up, because it's so close uh, to the U.S., uh, would be Africa. And again, we have manufactured in different parts, in different countries in Africa for years. However, there's instability, instability politically. Uh, there's a time issue, too, with, uh, with certainly the route that you have to take to deliver the goods. Uh, there's instability in the factories many times, too, with workers. Uh, there's a lot of issues with that. But that would be the last continent, really, to work with, uh, where you could really manufacture, again, large quantities of goods at a lesser price. You know, I'm just, I'm sitting here, I, my, one of my, another question would be as far as um, supply chain. Do you see things changing in Italy? As far as? As far as people more accessible from a price standpoint for people being you know, able to work there, a, or I, is that? I, I did work in Italy for a few years, and I love working with Italian manufacturers. Unfortunately, it became a price issue for me as well. Um, and over the years, China began to mimic a lot of their fabrications. so. Instead of buying goods from uh, Italy and fabric, you could go to China and really buy the same thing at half the price. And that's probably the issue with it. Again, it depends upon the type of product you're working with, though, and the level of product. 
Uh, it, it, again, for a moderate price or even a lower, better price, you'd have to go to China. But if you want to work in luxury or higher price goods, at least wonderful. But is some of the expertise from China moving to other parts of Europe? Oh, yeah. China has, again, they've opened up a lot of facilities in other parts of the world. Um, even here, obviously, as we just spoke about before, uh, they've gone into many countries. You know, they're obviously in Korea in a big way, too. Uh, and certainly they've gone into Vietnam, Cambodia, Bangladesh. Uh, India is going to be the next big one, I think, too, as well. India, if we have a trade deal with them, which we may uh, in the next year or so, uh, they're going to be a, a very good uh, area to work in. Their expertise has come up a great deal. Over the last, uh, I'd say, seven, eight years, they've had a big financial input from Europe. So um, I, I've been in some wonderful factories there, some knit factories, actually, that were totally automated, which were fabulous. They were just so clean, so well run. So they're the next country, I think, as well, but really can serve a good purpose for us too. There, there are so many things on the horizon, you know, I always liked, I used to like to follow labor around the world because it was always interesting to watch the price of labor and how it went. But now things are changing so much that um, it's even more interesting to me what advances people are making in those countries to become more affordable and more techno savvy basically as well. Are they affordable in their own countries? As as far as them purchasing their own goods? Yeah. Or it depends, again, what it is. Um, obviously, China has their own market, and they've been manufacturing for years there as well. Um, it, again, it depends upon the level of the product. You know, I, I think there was a period of time, too, when a lot of these, um, a lot of the younger people in these countries wanted to buy U.S. product because they felt it was more hip, I think, and, and the better thing to do. Um, I don't know. I think that's changing as well. Yeah. I, I have, I'm a fan of this uh, South American shirt company, Cuba Vera. And uh, I got to go, I was recently in Miami, and I got to go to the Cuba Vera store that's in a, a mall there because I had trouble finding their shirts in New York. And I went and I was disappointed because it was all made in China. And it's these oh, South American tropical shirts. Yeah. And it's like, I, it's not special anymore. <laughs> I know. And I they, wanted something from south I, of the border, not yeah. Peru the other is another, side of the line. Uh, I love working in Peru as well. It's a wonderful country. And they, of course, are duty-free. So that's a big plus all the time as well. But they used to have wonderful cotton factories there, uh, beautiful facilities, vertical would do smaller quantities also, which was a big plus, yeah. you know. So there's still a lot of countries to work in. It just depends what you're manufacturing, how soon you need it, and what you're willing to invest. Yeah. So earlier today on um, LinkedIn, or maybe it was yesterday, uh, the founder of the company, American giant um, Bayard Winthrop, uh, posted an article and first he talked about in pursuit of cheap and in, in that we all left the U.S., you know, looking for better prices. But it, but he talked about the company that he's built here. And it, it just goes back to can we not have more manufacturing here and not just in apparel? And one of the things he said was it would take someone like a Gap to turn around and start producing T-shirts here or Apple to turn around and start producing some part or a complete um 
you know, piece of one of their electronics. Do you think that's makes sense? Do you think that's feasible? I think going back to our early conversation, I think, again, we can do that here, but I think it's going to come through automation and through robotics because, again, the number of issues either with personnel um, or with location of where this needs to be. Um, I, I think we can bring manufacturing back here. I'd love to. Right, but we can't create another problem by having a solution. You know what I mean? By by reducing jobs, I guess, is... Uh, and that's, that, that mm. is one of the downfalls, mm. unfortunately, of robotics, you know, and, and AI and all this stuff. But this is the future, unfortunately. Or fortunately, it just depends. I think, again, people who want to be in this business will just have to be educated in a different manner and just have to look at uh, a different scope of a job in the industry. A lot of the jobs that, you know, I grew up with are gone. Pattern making's gone, basically. Very few companies have pattern makers. They don't even teach it anymore in schools, or you don't have a degree in it anymore. So It's crazy. Those are the rock stars. Exactly. I, you know, I'm on a board at FIT, and I've taught in a few schools, and I've, I've developed seminars. And you so need these these. I want to say old school <laughs> type of of opportunities uh, in school to be able to have people to have a background in this. You need to have a foundation. And without that, you really can't understand the whole process. I think everything can be just on a CAD system or you just, you know, put something up on a piece of paper and that's it. Uh, you've got to understand the full background and working of how to produce a product. So maybe, yeah, the curriculum is what needs to change because yeah. in, in working with um, a designer recently, one of his, he, he had one pattern maker who was working with him who was brilliant. But the fact is her background was production. She had been a production manager in a number of different places. So now, but she really wanted to study the art and yeah. um, she's talented, but she has that perspective, like you're saying. So maybe it's. It's also how I, training you know, can change. Yeah, I always tell students too, whatever whatever I've taught, that first of all, really um, learn as much as you can about the industry. Try different aspects of it. Educate yourself. You have to be flexible as well because in, in today's market, you don't know when your job's going to change. You don't know what's going to be more valuable the next five years down the road. Uh so it's so important to make sure you understand all aspects of the industry, whether you work in it or not. You know, when you're in a company, I always say, ask questions, go to the shipping area, go into production. If you're in design, I've worked with so many designers that they can draw pretty pictures, but don't understand how to make a garment. When I was a designer, I had to know everything. I had to do pattern making. I had to understand how to fully develop a product. Today, it's so segmented that you don't have the full education and the full understanding of, of how a product is made. And that's what I think is very sad too. Yeah, absolutely. Mary, thank you so much for taking the time. And to oh, come thank and you. Talk very much. It was a pleasure. It was great. Thank you for listening to American fashion podcast on our website, AmericanFashionPodcast.com. You can find our Be a Guest form, as well as a sign-up page for invitations to our live shows, and a new feature, the archives, with roughly 250 episodes published. The old shows don't fit in our feed anymore, so we've made them available for a nominal fee. 
please continue the conversation online on Twitter. We are at AFPOD and on Instagram. We are at American Fashion Show. And I personally am at Fashion Tech Guru on just about everything. For direct comments, give us a call at 646-979-8709. That's our voicemail line. Or email info at AmericanFashionPodcast.com. American Fashion Podcast is produced by Mouth Media Network, which holds the copyright to this and all other episodes, all rights reserved. Subsist, friends. Keep making things beautiful. Remain in force. I'm Charles Beckwith, and we'll talk to you again next week. is Mouth Media Network, audio for business.